You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Andrew Jackson O'Shaughnessy, who wins the award for the best name of all of our guests so far. Not just because my son is named Andrew Jackson Vane, but Professor O'Shaughnessy is currently the Saunders Director of the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies in, at Monticello and a professor of history at the University of Virginia. Dr. O'Shaughnessy is a graduate of, unlike me, he is a graduate of Bedford School in the University of Oxford and taught at Eton College. I would assume that uh, the Duke of Wellington is all over Eton College at some point, <laughs> somehow. He has written a book, which I've read. And if you want to understand the American Revolution from the British side, please read the book, The Men Who Lost America. It's a comprehensive study of how the British fought not only the Americans, but also fought amongst themselves in the revolutionary period. Write this down. The men who lost America, British leadership, the American revolution, and the fate of the empire. Professor O'Shaughnessy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Robert, thank you very much indeed for inviting me and for that splendid introduction. And it's good to meet your co-worker, uh, Chris. Chris, I'm sure is going to read this book, if not, because I'll buy it for him and send it to him. Uh, but please talk to us a little bit about why you decided to write a book from that focuses on the British point of view and the British actions during this time period. 
Well, I first started visiting America at the age of seven, and I would uh, come across twice a year. My parents were working in the United States. They thought it was just a short sojourn. And so uh, my brother and I remained in Britain. Uh, but I became fascinated as to the interconnections between British and American history. Uh, there was not a lot of American history taught in schools, uh, and even at the university level at that time, uh, it's grown quite a bit since. Um, but we learned virtually nothing of the American Revolution. I remember uh, a book in grade school that described the 13 colonies rebelling, and I didn't even realize that the 13 colonies were the core of what we now call the United States of America. And the book quickly uh, mentioned that Britain then gained a much larger empire in India, uh, and so didn't make very much of this, uh, this loss. And I also felt, uh, even as a child watching cartoons on television, uh, you know, I used to watch the Saturday morning cartoons uh, on the TV while I was in the United States. Uh, that there was a sort of caricature of the uh, British, and uh, it's and the, the way that they fought this war. And as I matured and read more, that sense became even stronger. Uh, you see it most in the movies, and when I give a a talk. Uh, I often show uh, a clip uh, from a movie uh, to show that the way the British are presented, uh, the Patriot, uh, the Mel Gibson movie is a good right. one, mm -hmm. where it shows Cornwallis much more worried about his dogs uh, getting across than he is about his supplies. And he's wearing this wonderful uniform and keeps describing it as a horse blanket uh, and is obsessed about getting it replaced. And I knew that the real Cornwallis was actually uh, uh, one of the most down to earth of all the generals, even though he was the one with a noble background. Uh, this is the guy who at Ramses Mill in North Carolina shed all of his, um, uh, his ca carriages, his supplies, his tents and lived out in the open with his uh, soldiers. Uh, his general, Sir Henry Clinton, described this as a Tartar army, meaning almost barbarian. <laughs> and the poor this Scots. Is, this is uh, a man who uh, had a sort of wanderlust uh, and a dedication to the military all of his life. He'd been in the military since his early teens, and uh, he, he was never really entirely satisfied with being at home, even though like George Washington, he kept saying that what he really wanted to do was to be on his estates and semi-retired. Uh, and he died in action. Uh, he never left uh, his posts. Uh, he later went on to be uh, the uh, governor general of Ireland. Uh, he was nearly assassinated in Phoenix Park because he refused to have security guards and would go walking out in the park in Dublin at nighttime, uh, he helped suppress the Great Irish Rebellion of 1798. Uh, he did two tours as Governor General in India, uh, in which uh, he died 
on the second uh, period in which he served. Uh, there are two monuments for him in India. And he died uh, a hero in Britain with a monument at St. Paul's. But he, even at the lower level, uh, you know, in popular history, uh, you get caricatures. Uh, Barbara Tugman did a book called The March of Folly. Right. And it, it was really a book against the Vietnam War. But a third of it was about the British and really was just pure stereotypes of them uh, in the Revolutionary War. But even at the academic level, this, this starts to um, you know, emerge. Uh, the, the kind of language they used to describe these uh, leaders. And it was Gordon Wood who, in reviewing Barbara Tuckman's book, says the problem is they only look stupid because they failed. Right, that's right. You know, if, they, if they'd succeeded, they'd look good. And the real proof of that is several of the people I describe in this book went on to have major careers afterwards. I've mentioned uh, Lord Cornwallis, but also uh, Lord Richard Howe, who commanded the Navy, while his brother commanded the Army, William Howe, in the early period of the war. Uh, Howe became Britain's leading naval hero, along with Rodney, who also is featured in this book, before Nelson. Uh, and uh, you know, there are lots of pubs named after him. He's commemorated on mugs and tokens and coins. Uh, and the real story of this book is that, uh, to some extent, if people do not have the resources they need, they can easily fail, regardless of their abilities. Uh, sociologists call it being set up to fail. When you started out to write the book, and as you started doing your research, obviously you already had a strong foundation. What surprised you the most? What did you learn about one of the men in the book? And you're like, well, you know what? I didn't know that. Or I had, a, I had an opinion, a judgment about X, but now I, that's changed. Uh, this was true of most of them. I mean, there were some of them that I thought might be dull to write about when I started the book, because you know, there, are, there are those who were colorful personalities like Burgoyne. Uh, there were those who'd been described as villains previously, like Lord George Germain. But there were also those who uh, they've never really commanded uh, a lot of biographies or a lot of interest. Uh, they seemed colorless, as such as Sir Henry Clinton. And Clinton was the commander in chief of the second half of the war. Uh, he replaced the Howe brothers. He oversaw uh, Cornwallis. Cornwallis was just a junior commander. And the same was true of Burgoyne. And Clinton has only uh, been the subject of one biography. It happens to be an excellent biography, which won a Pulitzer Prize. But uh, it's a book that basically portrays him as a neurotic. Uh, it, um, it was part of the new psycho history that was very popular in the 1960s, using a lot of Freudianism to understand the subject. Uh, and uh, it 
painted a picture of a man who uh, was always uh, approach avoidance, um, and that was too timid ever to really take his troops into battle. And uh, after going through the Clinton papers, some of the most extensive of any of the people featured in this book, and he wrote the longest memoir of the American Revolution by any general on either side, I came up with a very different image of Clinton. He was the most cerebral of all of the commanders, a highly educated man who would, uh, after the war, go and meet Edward Gibbon out in Switzerland, uh, who was just finishing his book on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, a keen musician, but a real scholar of military strategy and military history. And he kept the most extensive set of notes on books about military affairs of any general or officer in the British Army during the 18th century. And as I read his letters, I realized this man better understood this war than anyone else. And he really put his finger on the issue of this war when he said we need to uh, win the hearts and minds of America. He understood ultimately it was a war of hearts and minds, and you had to win the propaganda war. Uh, You had to win the love of the people. It could not just be achieved by coercion. He also understood something else which was very important, that the key to, uh, beyond actual loyalties of the population, the, the other great key to this war would be the navies, and especially the French navy. Uh, he recognized that the British could have been defeated much earlier in the war by a more successful alignment of the Continental Army and the French navy. You know, such as Destang off Rhode Island uh, uh, in the early period of French involvement, or even uh, in Georgia when the French and Continental Army uh, tried to remove the British from Savannah, uh, he could see that a, a British army could be cut off by sea and then basically strangled by the Continental Army which is exactly what happened to Cornwallis at Yorktown. And so Clinton, I joke, was indeed uh, a neurotic person. But as the saying goes, he had much to be neurotic about. Um, (laughs) And he he was aware when he took the position that he was being handed a poison chalice. He pointed out that he was being expected to win this war with fewer troops than the Howe brothers, less naval support, and at a time when Britain was at war with all of the major powers, France, Spain, later Holland, and with much of uh, Europe uh, basically allied against it in what was called the League of Armed Neutrality. This was the only war, other than 1940, when Britain was standing alone without an ally. And Clinton was so horrified by his situation that he burst out into tears in front of a young officer who happened to be the son of a former 
prime minister. And he looked at the officer, and this was at the beginning of his command, and said, I would rather be the sentry guarding the door of my office than be in my position. We're talking with Professor Andrew Jackson O'Shaughnessy about his book, The Men Who Lost America, British Leadership, the American Revolution, and the Fate of the Empire. It's a wonderful book chapter by chapter, each focusing on a particular person or in one chapter, the Howe brothers, George III, Lord North, the Howe brothers, John Burgoyne, Lord Germain, who was, I think, Secretary of State for War or Secretary for War, Henry Clinton, Lord Cornwallis, George Rodney, Admiral, and the Earl of Sandwich, who headed the Admiralty. So let's let's make sure I want to cover as many of these folks in a little bit of detail as possible. Um, you know, your your point about the Americans. Caricature of the Brits back then. Whether it was, I think, the Bugs Bunny, a Connecticut rabbit in King Arthur's court or some of the other uh, cartoons of the day, since you brought it up, has George the third as a puffed lipped fatso who is basically kind of a dullard and adult um coming through your book i got the sense that he was stubbornly very british he comes for the hanoverians they're german but he's actually born i think in great britain unlike his father grandfather great-grandfather George II is his grandfather. His son, Frederick, George III's father, dies. So George III becomes king at a very young age, just about when, set in 1760, just as these things are starting to heat up. Um, but he's he wasn't that at all. He seemed to have been willing to be a fighter, to fight for the colonies, to fight for the supremacy of, quote unquote, the mother country. But he was very much a, a Renaissance man who unfortunately descended into madness uh, through no fault of his own. Um, I've read two or three biographies of him, and he comes off as very impressive, but yet somehow is the king we remember for losing the American colonies. Uh, what did you, how do you, would you rate his leadership during this time period? Well, I, sh- I should observe first that you don't need to go back to Bugs Bunny, uh, the recent <laughs> Uh, musical Hamilton has a caricature <laughs> of him. And I forgot when I was writing the book, and it was a little clip of a movie I used to show when I first came over to the United States, uh, but there's a movie called Swift, Sweet Liberty with John Older, and it shows that Americans themselves can poke fun at these caricatures because in the movie, the British reenactors who are meant to be losing all these battles and they're meant to be portraying the American Revolution, get fed up at having to lose all the time. And there's Americans playing the British reenactors, and they decide to win a battle. And it messes up the movie, of course, <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, it's really quite a good uh, humour uh, aimed at the way we do have these sort of cardboard cutout views of what these guys were like. Um, and... One of the reasons I wanted to do this was not just because I was concerned with their reputations, which uh, are neither here nor there, 
But I think that this distracts from the real reasons why Britain lost the war by uh, being too obsessed with leadership and decisions. Uh, we're missing the big picture. So hopefully we'll get time to talk about that in a while. George III is quite impressive in his way. Uh, a historian, Herbert Butterfield, who was writing at the end of the Second World War and based at Cambridge University, he described George III as Churchillian. And interestingly, one of Britain's leading current historians of Churchill, Andrew Roberts, has just right. written a, ma a massive biography of George III. And uh, he also makes comparisons to Churchill. Uh, what surprised me writing about George III is that he, he was not responsible for the policies that led to the American Revolution. Uh, it's difficult to make the case that he was a real tyrant. Uh, he did what he was supposed to do as king, and that was to support the claims and authority of parliament. The policies were largely devised by parliament. What interested me, though, was that after the Boston Tea Party, he became obsessed with America and said, uh, basically, they'll be lions while we are like sheep. I think this is always worth remembering when people argue for using force and they start quoting Neville Chamberlain and Munich <laughs> and appeasement. Uh, sometimes you can go also the other way and make an error. Uh, it's easy to think the only way to solve something is through coercion. And that was George III after the Boston Tea Party. And he basically felt, uh, and he articulated Britain's war aims and reasons for fighting this war better than anyone else in the book, that if Britain lost this war, it would cease to be a great power. So in his way, he understood the potential and importance of America. He thought that Britain, by losing the war, would lose its place among European nations, and that basically it had to win. And by the middle of the war, uh, he'd, he'd moved to a castle, Windsor Castle. He started having that done up. None of his, neither his grandfather nor great-grandfather ever wanted to live at Windsor. This became George III's main palace outside of central London. And uh, military music's playing every evening. Uh, he was portrayed wearing a red coat, uh, most famously by Benjamin West, who happened to be American from Philadelphia and was ironically George III's favorite painter. And uh, George III was making comments like, if any 10 men will stand beside me, I intend to go on. If others will not be active, I must uh, you know, basically take control. And he became almost his own prime minister. After Yorktown, George III simply shrugged his shoulders and said, it's a setback like Saratoga, but we must continue. And he became very close to considering uh, essentially abdicating rather than accepting the loss of America. He uh, disdained the politicians. There's a marvelous document in the Huntington Library in California in which uh, it's George III's speech to recognize the peace and the independence of the United States. And he crossed, crosses out the word independence and puts separation. 
as though somehow this is going to be temporary. So George III, as you mentioned, and comes through in your book, thinks the loss of the colonies would demote Britain to a second-rate power or uh, knock it off its preeminent pedestal. In that sense, however, though, wasn't George III wrong? Yes. In fact, uh, Tom Paine was far more perceptive when he said that after the revolution, Britain and America would be doing more trade with with each other than before the American Revolution. And for a long time after the American Revolution, America, to some extent, was a satellite of Britain. It's one of the things that obsessed uh, Thomas Jefferson, who disliked it. Uh, uh, Hamilton, of course, was famously more happy to return, as was Washington, to uh, a close relationship with uh, Britain. Um, But... uh, And, of course, by the time of Churchill, Churchill was arguing that uh, essentially it was part of a a great alliance, the English-speaking peoples, uh, and that uh, America was a source of British strength. I'm going to mangle this quote, so forgive me. Uh, I think I'm going to get maybe right. Otto von Bismarck, the German chancellor, had said the most important fact in world relations, the most important element in world relations is the fact that the Americans and the British speak the same language. <laughs> I, I the, think. Go ahead. Yeah, I think France has been regretting uh, not winning the Seven Years' War. <laughs> well, that's actually you, where you, you, you led me exactly where I was going because if yeah. you look at the War of the Spanish Succession, the Seven Years' War, that's 1756 to 1763. Then you have the wars against Napoleon, where Britain ends up victorious. I mean, even if you want to push it out to the somewhat farcical Crimean War, where France and Britain take on Russia, I mean, Britain really did have this run of amazing victories in battles and conflicts in trade in uh, the acquisition of territories. I mean, you could even include, I think it's called the Asiento, the slave trade that they received uh, the um, the rights to. And so there's this shock of they lose a war that they certainly, you could say, could or should have won. How did the Brits, the leadership, the men you write about in your book, handle this loss? Because it was basically unprecedented. It was. Uh and you know, the, the difficulty for them was that it, they weren't losing to some great European power. And there is a story told by French officers at Yorktown that obviously Cornwallis did not appear for the surrender ceremony. He delegated it to an Irish uh, Lieutenant Major General O'Hara, uh, Charles O'Hara, uh, Cornwallis claimed to be ill, and O'Hara supposedly tried to surrender the sword to the French generals, uh, Rochambeau, rather than to George Washington, as if this was a French victory, not an American victory. Uh, And Rochambeau uh, may go to Washington, and Washington, who no doubt uh, felt snubbed, uh, made him uh, surrender 
to uh, a subordinate to the British themselves had uh, defeated Charleston, South Carolina, and had refused to give full honours of war. Um, in other words, uh, they did not uh, like this idea that they'd been uh, defeated by people who they had earlier suggested would run at the sound of the first gun. And mm. lots of outrageous statements made in Parliament in 1775. Uh, there was one parliamentarian MP called Grant who said that an army of 5,000 would just march from the north of America to the south uh, and the population would part like the sea. Uh, Lord Sandwich, the head of the Admiralty, said a blast one broadside from a British naval ship would cow the population. So it was humiliating. But the only person who really continued to think about it in Britain's loss was Sir Henry Clinton. And Clinton's great complaint is that the British tried to just forget it altogether and that the social season restarted, uh, the attention was elsewhere, and uh, that they basically tried to obliterate it. And Clinton said, this is an error. There will be another war between Britain and America. We need to think about this. And he also warned that America would have huge ambitions in taking mm. the entire rest of the continent. And he was even suggesting it would ultimately want to take South America and the Caribbean, and that this was a great power in the making and Britain needed to be worried about it. And of course, America has supplanted Britain, but it was probably the most successful transition of power from one great empire uh, to another great nation, uh, and largely because of this shared uh, language uh, shared values uh, and political system and legal systems that made that possible. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest is historian and professor of history at the University of Virginia, Andrew O'Shaughnessy, who is also the Saunders Director of the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello. I was just actually at this particular spot in the fall. So I want to ask you about it because it's it's mentioned in your book a few times and, and it's really mentioned quite a bit as almost a, I don't want to say a determining factor, but certainly maybe a lingering factor when it comes to British generalship. And that is the Battle of Bunker Hill. It's a magnificent little place when you visit Boston. I spent some time in Boston in October, went to Salem, went to Lexington and Concord. and But uh, Bunker Hill to me was just kind of an interesting the most interesting part of it as a history buff because of how prominent the battle seemed to have been in the minds of British generals who were there and who stayed in America to command British troops afterward. I, I think the battles, is it, is it June, 1775? Is that right? Correct. Yes. 
And so talk about the Battle of Bunker Hill, what happened and how it affected the mindset, the mentality of, of some of the British generals you profile in your book. Well, of course, it's always portrayed and those cartoons I used to watch as a child of the British just sending mindlessly uh, rank after rank of redcoats in file up the hill and they're getting mowed down by bullets. It was rather more complicated than that. Uh, but the significant feature is the British took Bunker Hill, but it was what's called a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, certainly Bunker Hill is a misnomer. It was actually a place called Breed's Hill next to it. Uh, but uh, the British took it, uh, but it's a Pyrrhic victory because the casualties were so high that it really represented a terrible loss. And they weren't able to then follow up and start clearing the countryside of American troops. They essentially were um, incarcerated within Boston, which was almost like a peninsula and an island at the time. And uh, the British lost about 50% of their officers. And William Howe was the real commander there, uh, even though uh, Gage was meant to be the commander in charge. Uh, the British had uh, were fed up of Thomas Gage. They didn't like his warnings that uh, they'd need a huge number of additional troops um, and that coercion was going to be an error. And so they sent Hal Burgoyne and Germain, all of whom were at this battle, and all of whom, of course, were just horrified by the British casualties, especially to officers who could not be easily replaced. And these are the kind of casualties that the British wouldn't experience against the First World War. And uh, uh, people have often speculated that Howe became especially timid and cautious in his tactics because of what happened um, at uh, Bunker Hill. Uh, he also was very concerned that he didn't think the British Army very well trained. And so uh, after Bunker Hill and after withdrawing from Boston, uh, he took much of the army up to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and focused purely on training. And it, that's the only time in the war when I can recall commanders uh, critiquing their troops or feeling that there was anything wrong with the army. For the most part, the regular soldiers served uh, very well. Um, but how? won all of the major battles that he commanded against Washington. Battles like uh, Long Island and White Plains and Brooklyn that um, were some of the biggest in the war. Uh, but is a good example of how you can win the battles and still lose the war. Uh, he was not personally commanding uh, at Trenton or at Princeton. Um, even though it was his his army that was encamped. Uh, Howe was chosen over 105 more senior generals in the British Army. And he was chosen because he was known as an expert in light infantry, which today we might think of as your commandos, uh, very um, right. suppo supposedly very versatile troops who fought in irregular uh 
regular numbers. He was actually against Britain going to war in America, and he only agreed to serve if his brother, Lord Richard Howe, could be head of the Navy. And this was very smart. It meant that you had beautiful coordination between Army and Navy. Richard Howe really wrote the blueprint on amphibious warfare. And these brothers, in a summer afternoon in August, uh, managed to land about 20 or 30,000 troops in Staten Island, uh, dozens of cannon, uh, and were able to move very quickly. Did Hal, you mentioned this a few minutes ago, so I want to go back to it. It, it seems to me in all of my readings about the war, that if the British were going to win, their best chance was 75-76, when Howe's chasing Washington, and Washington makes some grievous tactical and strategic errors, that that was the opportunity for the British to win, which seems almost counterintuitive because you would figure that in a longer war, a harder slog, the country with more resources and more relative power would be like, we'll play it out all day because I've got all the money and all the ships and plenty of troops. But really it was, and correct me, please, if you think I'm wrong, how had the chance to end the war long before the British eventually lost? And he didn't. Right. I mean, that, is, uh, that is the standard view of most military historians, that the British could have won it, it needed to be won by a knockdown blow right at the start. And ironically, the person who was overseeing all of the strategy for this war, Lord George Germain back in London, he recognized that. And so he's terribly disappointed that Howe wasn't more assertive. Uh, one historian once suggested if you'd reverse the British commanders, and had Cornwallis at the very beginning, uh, the, uh, the, the outcome might have been different. Uh, the ir irony about Cornwallis and Burgoyne is they were reckless. Uh, they took real risks of the kinds that people would argue Howe should have taken. But they are also an indication of why Howe didn't take risks, because those are the two guys who helped lose the war for Britain at Saratoga and Yorktown. In other words, Howe recognized he wasn't going to get reinforcements. Uh, the Britain traditionally only had small armies. It relied a lot on mercenary troops from Germany, and it relied on allies, uh, and it didn't have any allies in this conflict. In the French and Indian War, They've managed to get Prussia to do a lot of their fighting against the French in Europe while they focused on America. And uh, you know, Howe understood uh, the dangers of uh, a high-risk uh, policy. On the other hand, he always seems to have tried to wait to get the perfect situation. And Washington, part of the brilliance of his strategy was to deny him that opportunity and to realize uh, that uh, what was important was just to keep an army in the field and to show America was still able to stand up, e even if they were defeated, they could still show up uh, for a fight. 
two other parts of your book that seem to be running themes as you go through the analysis of these men. I'd like you to talk about them too, please. One, it doesn't seem like the British Navy ever got its act together where it functioned as a equal but ancillary arm of the British Army. Now, you could say the French Navy had a lot to do with that and that the Britain had commitments all over the world. And the United States had a pretty effective sort of privateer pirate uh, enterprise going. But but they just couldn't figure out how to use it in a way to strangle the colonists. That's A. B, that there just seemed to have been this amazingly persistent idea or notion that the majority of Americans were loyal to the British crown and to Great Britain generally, and that all you had to do was awaken these sleeping giants, to use Yamamoto's phrase, and we would, and the Brits would have all these amazing uh, loyalists come out of the woodwork to help defeat the rebellion. That was never true, at least militarily, even though maybe at the beginning of the war, emotionally, you could say that that was the case. Why do you think that they, the Brits were so persistent in thinking that the loyalists were just there waiting to be unleashed? Well, the, the reason is that there were loyalists. There were Americans who supported Britain. The American Revolution was also a civil war. And this is true virtually of every revolution. You know, let, think of the recent Arab Spring. There are also civil wars. And it's estimated that anything up to a third of Americans supported Britain. So that's quite a high proportion. And then, of course, there were a lot of Americans who were neutral, but who the British thought could potentially come on their side. And part of the problem was that the British were not talking to patriots. They were talking to loyalists. And the loyalists were assuring them that the majority of Americans really supported Britain and were just being intimidated by the patriots. And the patriots did use extreme methods, including tarring and feathering, even killing and uh, stripping people of their property to make them uh, support the cause. Uh, the patriots had a conscript army, which the British never had to do. And the British army was voluntary for the most part, only briefly in the war did they try to get uh, conscripts. Um, and you've got American loyalists like Joseph Galloway, who was one of the leading politicians in Philadelphia at the time of the First Continental Congress. He was in London a few months before Yorktown, telling Lord George Germain that five out of six Americans supported Britain. And if you want to think of an analogy in the um, in the Iraq War, uh, America put a lot of trust in a man called Chalabi, uh, both the FBI and the army. And he was saying Iraq is basically hate Saddam Hussein and will support America. Uh, and it proved actually disappointing as to the extent of those who were generally, genuinely pro uh, in the intervention. Uh, so individuals and supposedly in people with insider knowledge, and I, I think the lesson for this is that it's very difficult to take the pulse of citizens during warfare. 
and Jermaine even sent over uh, an official to try to calculate what the support was for Britain within South Carolina. Um, but it all depends on who you're talking to. It's also re worth remembering that uh, people's loyalties fluctuate during a war. And of course, the defeat of the British and uh, the presence of the British Army actually alienated potential support. Um, but essentially, I always feel the British had lost even before the first battle because the Patriots gained control of all of the assemblies, the militia, the law courts, and the loyalists were on the, the defensive and were isolated um, and subject to penalties uh, before a single British soldier appeared in the area. And how, how helpful was it, or how detrimental was it, excuse me, to the loyalist cause, in that they did not have a one or a troika maybe of leaders Whereas the Patriots had Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and John Hancock and Thomas Paine and the list goes on and on. Right. We can say Alexander Hamilton, um, uh, Joseph Warren, who dies at uh, Bunker Hill. But the Patriots had a leadership click and it doesn't seem that the loyalists did. So they had no one person to rally around unless that one person was George III. And that would seem relatively distant. So, uh, I mean, there were some impressive loyalist leaders. Thomas Brown, for example, was really on a par with Francis Marion in his uh, you know, the kind of jungle warfare. He was fighting down in Georgia and Florida and even in the Bahamas. Um, <clears throat> but you're right. You know, you don't have a leader of prominence uh, who can unite movement. And it didn't help that the British really didn't like using lawless troops. Uh, the British army had the professional hubris mm. of uh, modern day professionals uh, and they, uh, they disliked uh, working with untrained military. And you know, in defense of them, it should be said that George Washington was the same. The person uh, who really understood the value of militia and these unconventional troops was Nathaniel Green in the South. And he was forced to, along you know, with Daniel Morgan, they were forced to appreciate it because they just didn't have enough regular troops. And so they had to rely on uh, militia and, loyal, and patriot bands of different kinds to help uh, the conventional army behind the scenes. The British really never um, never had the uh, desire to do that. They were never willing to give these people equal rank in the British Army and to sort of recognize them in any serious way. Uh, they were similar with using the Germans, even though the Germans were professional troops. Uh, the British Army looked down upon them. And so there was a lot of hubris there and a failure to really recognize that it was true that whether it was loyalists or patriot militia, these people were not good against bayonets and in conventional warfare. The way they needed to be used was as supplements to the army to cut supply lines, to attack um, you know, your enemy's supplies, 
and uh, you know help cow people in the countryside uh, and to broaden the extent of loyalist uh, control in the western areas. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is Professor Andrew Jackson O'Shaughnessy, who wrote The Men Who Lost America, British Leadership, the American Revolution, and the Fate of the Empire. I think I have this correct, in which John Stuart Mill said that the Battle of Marathon was the most important battle in the history of England. Is the Battle of Saratoga the most important battle in the history of the United States? Uh, I think there's a very strong case for that. Um, and uh, it's interesting that of all the generals who've, uh, who command biographies, John Burgoyne is the most popular figure for Americans to write about, not Cornwallis. Uh, there is a new uh, biography just come out of Cornwallis by Richard Middleton. Um, but Burgoyne, you know, there aren't that many Cornwallis biographies. There are a lot of uh, Burgoyne, and that's because of Americans' interests in, uh, in this battle. And it's largely due to the fact that it's an, a, it's an entirely American victory. And it's the uh, victory, too, that essentially uh, paved the way for the French to come into the war. It proved that the American Revolution might indeed succeed and help to persuade the French to uh, come out of the shadows uh, where they've been giving military supplies and support and to uh, enter the war in a formal alliance with the United States. Uh, Should, so we're talking about the Battle of Saratoga, which is fought in September and October 1777. It's a beautiful battlefield. I'm sure you visited it. I visited it yes. about 15, 20 years ago. It's right by real close to West Point, upstate New York. It's actually very well done. You can, it's two separate battles in two separate months, and it's not as complicated as some of the other battlefields that I've been to where it's not like a one or two day affair and it all happens in the same spot. They do a great job of the presentation. But the, is it fair to say that aside from what actually happened on the battlefield where Benedict Arnold, is really the victor, I would say. And a lot of people say that, as opposed to Horatio Gates, who was the American commander. Is it fair to say that the Battle of Saratoga should never have been fought at Saratoga and certainly should not have been the scene of an American victory? And if is that, that is true, why did that happen? Why, were the, why was the United States and the American army in a position to bag an entire British army so early in the war? Well, this is perhaps one occasion where the decisions of British general were critical. Uh, John Burgoyne had promised the British government that he could march down from uh, Canada with an army and reach Albany in New York and meet up uh, with the forces of uh, Sir William Howe. And, uh, Initially, it went very well. He captured Fort Ticonderoga, which was really regarded as the, the great fortress of that hemisphere. Uh, and as far as Burgoyne was concerned and the British, capturing that fortress gave them control of upper New York State. 
because they believed that most of New York was filled with loyalists and that it would be basically a cakewalk from uh, uh, Fort Ticonderoga down to um, down to Albany. Uh, they really hadn't looked at the geography and the problems of the river systems uh, and the terrain. And certainly as the American army retreated from Ticonderoga, they put lots of obstacles in the web going. Uh, they uh, created... Uh, they uh, felled trees, uh, and then uh, Burgoyne was held up by his German mercenaries who were still wearing their cavalry outfits and long boots and sabers and uh, equipment that just wasn't good for this kind of uh, terrain. Uh, part of his army uh, was hit, and the German mercenaries at Hubberton. Uh, and a very important skirmish, much like Cornwallis's King's Mountain. Uh, and Burgoyne should have decided, as his predecessor, General Carlton, decided uh, only a year earlier, just to turn back uh, and come back another season. Burgoyne instead insisted that he had positive orders never to turn round and to proceed. And Burgoyne, by background, was a gambler, and this seems to have been his gambling instincts. By the time he got to Saratoga, which, as you rightly say, is a seven, several-day battle uh, and fought in a number of different places, including Freeman's Farm, and nowhere was it fought in modern-day Saratoga. Uh, but it's a beautiful location uh, next to the Hudson River with marvellous vistas. Um, Burgoyne suddenly found himself outnumbered from by five to one. Uh, and Burgoyne later wrote an incredible account of there uh, uh, and said the American troops were basically as good as the equivalent European troops. This was really a professional army. Um, and certainly people have given Benedict Arnold a lot of credit uh, in the main battle for turning uh, back. Uh, Burgoyne's force, rather than, is, Philip, rather than Philip Schuyler, who's commander-in-chief. This is a question that's related somewhat to one of the five questions that you'll get at the end of the podcast here in a few minutes, but I'll give you a freebie. That way you may not have to make a hard choice. If you could be there and witness any event during the American Revolution, which event would you choose? And I, I, of course, love political history, even though uh, this is military. But in, in this book, I deliberately chose to look at both political and military figures. I would love to have witnessed the Declaration of Independence uh, and some of the great moments uh, in Congress. Uh, I begin the uh, book with George III describing Thomas Jefferson meeting uh, George III, along with John Adams, I'd have loved to have been a fly in the wall uh, to see mm -hmm. that scene. Um, there's a marvelous clip from the John Adams series that I often it show. Is, it is great. It is. Yes, yes it is. Uh, and that is when just Adams alone was first presented. Uh, and 
you know, found it very difficult just to say I'm representing the United States of America uh, and was incredibly nervous by his own account. Uh, and in the film, they use the exact dialogue that uh, uh, John Adams recounts. Uh, and in that particular case, George III was actually clearly warm to him, I suspect, because John Adams was known as being anti-French and pro-British. And he didn't... Um wasn't the prime author of the Declaration of Independence, which which I always say is the greatest negative political document in the history of the world. There's really not a whole lot about the United States and how great it can be. There's a, the, most of it's about starts with he and they talk about George the um, third. Uh, well, it'll amuse you. Jefferson in later life said we should put George the third in our pantheon of heroes as almost as they should be up on Mount Rushmore. Because he drove, he drove us to our own good. <laughs> <laughs> a couple more questions before we get to the five questions. Lord Cornwallis surrenders at Yorktown, October 19th, 1781. It's a remarkable scene, I'm sure. But it's a bit of a gamble because Washington, who was obsessed with retaking New York and was obsessed with it, throughout the war, I think it's, I think obsessed is probably the right verb, uh, decides we got a chance to bag this army. The fact that it happened, how it did with a French naval victory off the battle in the battle of the Virginia Capes, it seems, I'm not going to say preordained, but every single thing had to happen right for the Americans and the French, quite frankly, to win that siege to surrender of the surrender of Cornwallis's army. How did everything seem to go right? And thus the end of the war. It's very remarkable. And it really is a case of a lot of last minute improvisation. Now, this was not part of some great grand strategy, even though it was a brilliant operation. Uh, both George Washington and Sir Henry Clinton thought that the final battle would be for New York. Uh, and Clinton was obsessed that Washington intended to attack his army at Manhattan. And therefore, Clinton took far too long to realize that Washington had been persuaded by both the French Admiral de Grasse and the French um, General Rochambeau to leave New York and march south to uh, go to Williamsburg and then Yorktown, and to try and cut off Cornwallis, who was commanding uh, essentially uh, you know, an expeditionary force of the British, not the main force, uh, based in the south. Uh, Washington did the maneuver brilliantly. They managed to persuade Clinton that they were still camped around New York, leaving campfires burning and using lots of deceptive methods, uh, which uh, Washington was very skilled. Uh, I think one of the great heroes of this story is Admiral de Grasse, the French naval commander, who had come over from France, and much of his fleet had been undetected by the British. They'd failed to realize how large it was. And he disobeyed his orders. He was meant to split his fleet up send half of it back with the French sugar from Saint-Domingue and French islands like Martinique and Guadeloupe. 
Instead, he left the Spanish to guard the French islands, and he proceeded uh, north with the, the entire French fleet. And he took on uh, pilots who persuaded him that he should actually go to the Chesapeake Bay, not to New York. And he arrived in the Chesapeake Bay. He blocked it off. Uh, and so Cornwallis really became checkmated, surrounded on one side by the Continental Army, and various militias, states, and on the other by the French Navy. Uh, the British appeared and tried to dislodge the French Navy in what's often called the Battle of the Chesapeake Capes. Uh, the problem for the British is that their Navy was weaker and a much smaller size. And it was just the kind of scenario that Sir Henry Clinton had predicted. A stronger French Navy working alliance with the Continental Army would basically be able to cut off uh, the, uh, the British Army. And that is exactly what happened. A beautiful checkmate, but very much improvised at the last minute. No one had guessed that that would be the main theatre of the war. And Washington actually didn't think of it as decisive. Uh, one of my uh, claims to fame is I once got to give the speech uh, in Yorktown on the day that commemorates the, uh, the surrender to astounded French and American army officials. So I don't think I'd ever heard a, <laughs> a British person ever give the speech. Um, and what I point out is no one at the time realized this was the end. Uh, one of the few was the British Prime Minister, Lord North. And when he was told the news, he uh, put his head in his hands and said, oh, God, it's all over. But George III was confident that Britain would just go on. Uh, they were still doing military planning at the beginning of 1782. Uh, it took a while for it to dawn this was the end. But I think the important lesson here is just like Afghanistan, Vietnam, uh, you know, it wasn't Ukraine, Ukraine, please, please maybe, mention that as maybe, well. Maybe Ukraine, we, we don't know the outcome there yet. But, you know, it, it didn't end in a total defeat. Britain could have gone on fighting, uh, just as the US could have gone on fighting in Afghanistan and in Vietnam. What really changes is opinion and the willingness of a country to keep making sacrifices to. And ultimately, they make a decision that the cost is too high and that this just isn't worth fighting. And so what changed after Yorktown was opinion in Parliament. Even the military members of Parliament were voting against extending this war. And Lord North took the decision in March of 1782 basically to resign. And with North gone, George III was unable to find a prime minister who's willing to continue this war. So last question, you are Andrew O'Shaughnessy, Minister for War, Secretary for War, for the Brits, for the British government during this time period. Could you have cobbled together the army and the strategy that could have defeated the Americans? And if so, what would you have done? Well, I think ironically, and one of the reasons I wrote this book is that I knew the descendant of Lord George Germain, who was the main architect of the war 
in Britain. His official title was Secretary of State for America. Um, but he, he was in many ways uh, strung by the fact that he didn't have absolute control over the army or navy. He had to work with colleagues to get their assent and cooperation. But Germaine did have the right idea that in order to win this war, you sent over more troops than even the commanders had asked for. So he managed to get about 50,000 troops into America in 1776. There were already 20,000 there. He sent another 30,000 across. It was a huge uh, logistics feat. Uh, he had a staff of only 25. It required every merchant ship in the British Navy and all the small-sized naval ships. Uh, men were so closely huddled, and they were coming from as far as different ports of Germany and Ireland that they'd often uh, all have to change positions together at nighttime because they were so crushed in the lower decks. And uh, he wanted a commanders to be very bold, both Carlton in um, Canada and Howe in New York. Um, and Carlton was meant to do what Burgoyne was meant to do the following year, march down south and meet up with Howe in Albany. Uh, he was very critical of Carlton, who he thought was more interested in releasing prisoners, that included Daniel Morgan, and mm. trying to play nice guy. And he felt the same with William Howe, but he particularly blamed uh, Sir Guy Carlton. Uh, and uh, he felt his generals basically let him down, although he, at that stage of the war, he didn't openly blame them, but he felt they'd been far too tepid. And his argument was, you can't start talking peace and trying to uh, be nice until you've really won a major victory. Uh, so you'll just seem weak. It's interesting in the sense that when you read about this war, half the time my mind is, there's no possible way the Americans are going to win, even though I know they win. And then the and then another half of my mind is, what were the British thinking that they could subdue almost an entire continent? I mean, I'm overstating it, but I mean, hundreds of thousands of square miles. How could they possibly think that they could win the types of battles or hearts of minds, as you said earlier, that would cause the war to end? But yet you can make an argument that both were true, that the Americans should have won and that the British shouldn't have lost. So this, to me, for the British, was classic counter-revolutionary warfare of the kind that the British faced in the 19th century in Afghanistan, the Russians faced just before the collapse of the Soviet Union and arguably helped lead to the collapse of the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, and that the United States faced in Afghanistan. And arguably, Vladimir Putin is going to face this in Ukraine. The British at various times took every American city, but they could never win the war. Whenever it came to uh, trying to occupy large areas of ground, uh, it collapsed beneath them. And they could not, uh, I mean, the great case is the South. In 1780, uh, Clinton took uh, Charleston, and then Cornwallis 
defeated uh, the Continental Army in the South uh, against uh, the general who so successfully commanded at Saratoga uh, at the Battle of Camden. And it looked as though it was then a free run for the British from South Carolina into Virginia. But as we know it, it all uh, collapsed even without the Continental Army present. And uh, this, this is the key, the key in counter-revolutionary warfare is surely, firstly, to have a lot of support. So that was very, even though some people say the patriots only had a third of the support of the country, uh, in practice, it always seems when push came to shove, an awful lot of patriots appeared uh, when Cornwallis crossed over from Canada, uh, he outnumbered his counterparts two to one. When he gets to Saratoga, he's outnumbered four or five to one. And he says people appeared from nowhere, from the Hampshire Grants, where he didn't even know there were people. Uh, and the same happens at uh, Yorktown. The other big uh, factor is foreign aid and getting foreign support. Piers Mackesy, who'd written the most uh, detailed encyclopedic account of the British side of the American Revolution in the 1960s, he argued the British could have won. But the example he gives is the British success in Malaysia uh, post the Second World War uh, in the late 1950s. The thing about the British in Malaysia, it was like in Vietnam, the British did succeed but the big difference from Vietnam is it was just an ethnic minority of the population, Chinese, who had risen up against the British, and they got no foreign support. Other communist countries were not helping them. And even so, it took the British several years and the most ruthless tactics. And this is the other thing with counter-revolutionary warfare. You really almost have to be willing to countenance Nazi-type tactics which, of course, come at a great political cost uh, to try and terrify the population into be subduing. And the British generals and American generals were very concerned with this war not becoming uncivilized. It did at moments. Uh, things got very out of hand. But on both sides, uh, there was a fear that this could just descend into anarchy. And fortunately, uh, there was a certain humanity in the leadership on either side. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. I'm sorry, we didn't get a chance to talk about the Battle of Cowpens, which is my all-time favorite battle in all of world history. Maybe another time, but I want to get to the five questions. Uh, Professor O'Shaughnessy, are you ready? Yes. <laughs> what was your first job? So uh, actually, my first job was teaching at Lincoln College, Oxford. Uh, I was still a graduate student, and uh, I taught there as a lecturer for one year while finishing my doctorate. And then my first real job after getting uh, credentialed was to teach at Eton College, which you mentioned in your opening. Uh, this was the school where a third of the people in this book were educated. Uh, 
and indeed the current British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and his predecessor, David Cameron. When I was born, there was also an old Etonian as uh, uh, Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, mm. and people said at the time, this will be the last old Etonian Prime Minister. Britain is democratising. It can no longer be possible that half our prime ministers have come from one school. It's a very remarkable school with its own museum of Egyptology uh, and uh, a wonderful ancient chapel that's affiliated with King's College Chapel in Cambridge. Uh, it was moved, used as the backdrop in the movie Chariots of Fire. What was your first concert? Uh, the first real concert that I attended, and I remember this very well, uh, was Carmen, Bizet, George Bizet's Carmen. Mm -hmm. And I went up to it with two other pupils from school, one of whom was American and was somewhat exotic because he'd come over. Uh, he was part Spanish, part American. And he just joined in uh, basically uh, the uh, junior high school. And uh, he had his father lived in London and they used to go to the opera a lot. And it, it happened to be one that was being filmed by the BBC. And we managed to get um, a ticket at the last moment. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? Um, I'm very fond of Alex de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. It's one of the most insightful books about America and democracy ever written. Um, it was actually a book written in two volumes. Uh, and in some ways, I'd recommend instead of reading the two volumes, uh, reading a synopsis of it uh, by an academic historian. But um, he's got some marvelous chapters there. Uh, it was de Tocqueville who sort of coined the phrase tyranny of the majority. And he was both excited about democracy. He saw America as a, a laboratory of the future, but he also saw the dangers inherent in democracy and the problems of democracy. And he also realized that as each country democratized, it would become more like America. And a lot of the features that we say are American are really the features of democratic peoples. Question number four. If you could witness any event in history, so you've already done your American Revolutionary War answer, so you get everything else. If you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Well, I, having spent so much time on the early American history, uh, I and having spent the last 13 years running a Jefferson Institute, I would love to have, uh, have actually met him uh, and to have seen him in action. I've just written a book, uh, The Illimitable Freedom of the Human Mind, Thomas Jefferson's Idea of a University. And it's the best documented period of his life between the age of 73 and 83 at Creighton University. And he'd invite all the students on a Sunday evening in groups of three to seven. And I would love to have been part of one of their, those groups. We do fortunately have some rich descriptions of those evenings by students who were talking about it still after the Civil War. And you think Thomas Jefferson would be okay with uh, a Brit running his uh, 
institution? Uh, he might be. I, and he, when he opened the university, uh, five of the first eight professors were British. And he said, I'm not, he tried to get the best people from Harvard. And when they turned them down, he said, I'm not going to have the hand-me-downs of other American universities. <laughs> uh, and uh, he wanted the best of the best. And it was the most expensive project after the Erie Canal and the building in Washington, D.C. And he built these grand pavilions for the professors and said, you can't just have huts if you want to attract professors from Europe. <laughs> Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, talk about anything you want, whom would you choose? That's uh, that's the most difficult question. I, I haven't heard any of these questions incidentally beforehand. Uh, uh, so that would uh, it would have been easier to have answered 20 years ago. People like Pope John Paul II uh, or Margaret Thatcher, uh, some of you know, when we had some real lions uh, of personalities that uh, it would be pleasant. I, I think it's always interesting, of course, to meet the president of the United States. Uh, and um, uh, it, uh, you know, that probably I'd be more interested in that conversation than most of the European leaders currently. I was at college with Boris Johnson, and so I know he was a fun personality, uh, and he, <laughs> one, one could certainly have a convivial evening with him, uh, uh, whether he was a great uh, politician or not is another matter. We, we joke that he's the first prime minister since the 18th century not to know how many children he has. <laughs> You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest has been Professor Andrew Jackson O'Shaughnessy, author of The Men Who Lost America, British Leadership, The American Revolution, and The Fate of the Empire. Professor O'Shaughnessy, thank you so much for coming on the Leaders and Legends podcast. I learned a lot from reading your book. It's a terrific read, and I really appreciate your time. Robert, this has been my pleasure, and uh, I'm going to catch up on many more of your legion leaders and legends past episodes thank you very much indeed thank you very much for listening to leaders and legends brought to you by veteran strategies incorporated if you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com that's robert at veteranstrategies.com strategies.com